if you are visiting here this morning, I just want to again welcome you. Thank you for coming. Um, at this church, we preach through books of the Bible, just passage after passage after passage. And we're right now preaching through three different books of the Bible, Deuteronomy, Luke, and 1 Timothy. And we even preach through books of the Bible on holidays. <laughs> And that is today. I mean, we're just going to preach the next passage in 1 Timothy. Um, but you might ask why. Like, why are you doing this today? Why not take a break? Why not um, preach on something else? And the more I thought about it, because I've got to preach this text sometime, right? The next time I preach, or, you know, I've got to preach it. We can't just ignore it. The more I thought about it, though, um, the more I thought how appropriate this passage is for us today. This passage is so appropriate for us today, and, and here's the reason why. This passage, as we've read it at the end, this passage is about church leaders. And what this world needs, what the church of Jesus Christ needs, is it needs leaders. The church needs leaders. And I heard... I heard a long time ago, and this has stuck with me for years and years and years, and, and the more I reflect on this quote and the more I see it just being played out in history, in world history, and it's this truth, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. The church, therefore, if that's the case, if that's true, the church needs leaders that have conviction, that have courage, and that have compassion. The church, in other words, needs leaders that have character. That's what the church needs. And this is exactly what we see in our passage. So if you're not there, I want to invite you again to open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you need a page number, it's 1187 if you're using a pew Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. That's going to be our focus this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The book of 1 Timothy, it's written with this purpose. 
The purpose is so that the church would know how to conduct itself. The church would know how to order itself. In short, it's written so that the church would know what they are to be and what they are to do. That's why the book of 1 Timothy was written. The church, as we have seen, it needs to be shaped in a certain way. It needs to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs to be shaped by the person and work of him, what he has done. And what Christ has done shapes the church. And so we're given what that vision looks like, what a gospel-shaped church looks like. We're given what that vision looks like in the book of 1 Timothy. And so today, we begin, in in this sermon and the next sermon, we look at this biblical vision of the church and its call for leadership. What are the leaders to look like in the church? So in a nutshell, we could say the message today is this. A gospel-shaped church is led by two offices. Those offices are elder and deacon. And those officers are men with character. And today, we're going to look at just the first seven where it addresses the pastor, or the elder, or the bishop or overseer. In the New Testament, I don't have time to unpack this now, but in the New Testament, elder, pastor, overseer, and bishop all re- refer to that same office. Right? This is what verses 1 through 7 are talking about. The office of what we like to say around here is pastor. And then next time we'll look at deacon in verses 8 through 13. Now, before we dive into the details of these, these qualifications, we could call them. Before we dive in, I want to say something to each of you this morning. Really, with the focus on those of you who are members of this church. If you are a member of this church, right, you have a very important role to play in this church. Your role, your role is not limited It's not limited to coming on Sunday morning and giving in the offering. Not not at all. That's that's just just a very small part of it. Your role in this church, brothers and sisters, is so very important. So very important because you know what it does? It determines the health and vitality of this church. Your role even determines, for a few of us, our career path for the vocational pastors here, Pastor Jeff and myself. Right? So what do I mean by this? What am I saying? What I mean by this is that the elders and the deacons that we'll get to next week, we don't self-propagate ourselves. We're not just like an isolated unit, and we don't just reproduce ourselves with with no one else saying anything about it. You, the congregation, you have a voice in who the leaders are. The elders and deacons are confirmed by you, the congregation. So it's so important for you to know these qualifications, 
to study them, to listen to them as we go through them in a minute. And so how do we do this at this church? Well, we have a formal time at once a year in which we take your formal nominations for the office of elder and deacon, and we do that at the end of January, coming up here in a few weeks. Right? And then, and then I would say we take your informal nominations that just happen throughout the year as, as, as we just talk day in and day out. Right? So your voice is so important. I personally, and I know I speak for my other pastors too, we take your voice seriously. This is a church. This is a body. Right? We are one together. Right? So we all have a say-so in the leadership here. We play different roles, yes. Some are pastors and some are deacons, but we all have a voice. And I want to say furthermore, this whole list, this whole list of qualifications that we're going to look at, with the exception of a few, is about character. It's about character. So, here's what I want to ask you. Do you know... Do you really know the person that you're going to nominate here at the end of the month? Yes, someone may be good at preaching or teaching a class or fixing a broken faucet. We want, we want a person to be doing the work of an elder and doing the work of a deacon long before they're given the title. But first and foremost, elders and deacons must be men who have this character found in this text. This means that that you as a body, (laughs) I'm serious about this, it means you have to take time to get to know the potential leaders, to get to know even even the current leaders. And and I'm saying that for a reason here, and and I'll get to to why I'm saying that here in a minute. Um, but, But it takes time. So that, that's, my, that's my plea to you. My plea to you is this may seem boring to go through a list of qualifications, especially on New Year's Day when you're maybe a little tired from last night, right? But these are so important because it determines the health and vitality of Grace Community Bible Church, a church that we all love and that we want to see God bless for years and years and years to come. But everything does rise and fall on leadership. So with that said, with all that said, now maybe you'll listen a little closer um, to these qualifications. So we have in this text, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we have 16 qualifications as I count them. Okay, maybe you can group a few together. That's not the main point. And... And just so you know, there are three more qualifications for an elder, for a pastor found in Titus, right? So this isn't even the complete list. We're just going to deal with them here, and we can deal with Titus at another time um, if we preach that book in the future, right? Now, let me say two more things about these qualifications that are very important that you need to understand as as we work our way through these qualifications. First, This list of qualifications that we read through for a pastor, it is the minimum requirement. It is not the maximum requirement. 
It's the minimum required. In other words, this is not an exhaustive list, but it represents the bare minimum of what pastors should be. Okay, does that make sense? This is a minimum requirement, not a maximum requirement. Second, there are various ways to group these qualifications. Now, if you're like me, it's helpful to sort of categorize things, to put things in lists and, and lists of lists and things like that. That's just how my mind works. Very categorical mind that God has given me. So I've categorized these, this list, and it's on your bulletin insert. If you have a bulletin insert, um, it'd be helpful for you to pull that out to kind of work your way through this 16 um, list of qualifications. And here's how I want to categorize this. All right? So we have... In this list, we have these categories. We have first, a pastor's desire, then his reputation, then a pastor's marriage, then a pastor's discipline, then a pastor's ministry, then his temperament, then his money, then his family, and then his maturity, and then his reputation again. All right, so there are 10. There are 10 sort of categories to put these 16 words in, in this list, all right? So let's go now through these, and again, listen to these as we go through these, because these are things that you need to be seeing in leadership, current leadership, and then in future leadership of this church. So number one, first, is a pastor's desire. His desire. So look with me again at verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, It is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, this first qualification, as you probably know, it's a little different than the rest. The others, except for one other, deal with character. This one deals with desire, right? The desire of a pastor. But I want to say this is a very necessary qualification. Men should not be pastors who who do not desire the work. Why? Because my experience in the last 12 years or so is that pastoral ministry is too difficult emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and even physically for a man not to want to do the work. He's got to want to do the work. Now let me make clear that the desire to be a pastor says nothing in and of itself about his skills or about his gifting. The desire alone says nothing about his skills or his gifting. Charles Spurgeon has famously said that if a man can do anything else with his life than be a pastor, he's not called to be a pastor. Now, Spurgeon is not saying that if a man cannot do something else, like he can't be a good lawyer or an accountant or something else, you know, just go be a pastor then, right? It's not like, it's not like I've tried everything else and I can't do anything else, so I might as well be a pastor. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's saying that a man must desire to do it. His heart must be in it. But... Spurgeon is not God and he's not infallible, so I'm going to take exception to Spurgeon. 
Hold your breath. <laughs> okay? Hold your breath. I don't say that lightly because we love Spurgeon around here. But there are many times in a man's life, I think of Jeremiah, Jonah, and Joseph, three men just came to my mind who wanted to do something different, way different than what God wanted them to do. How many times, and I'm going to be a little bit transparent this morning, how many times, and I'll tell you, have I or my fellow pastors been in a room, been in an elder meeting, and, and wish we could be doing something else with our lives? Just being honest. Being honest. Especially when things are tough. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to be tempted to other things. But at the end of the day, a man must desire the work of a pastor. If he doesn't, or if he no longer does, he is not to be a pastor. He isn't or he is no longer called to pastoral ministry. He must desire the work. You must desire it. Secondly, the second area or category is reputation, a pastor's reputation. And here in verse 2, we see an overseer then must be above reproach. Now this idea here of above reproach, it's sort of a summary qualification of all the other qualifications. And here's why. It's first on the list, and it's repeated in the middle of the list, in the middle of these qualifications, and it's repeated again at the very end. And I'm going to tell you at the end why, again, it it is kind of a summary. To be above reproach means that nothing ultimately sticks with the man. Yes, pastors are accused many times, many times. Above reproach, though, as one person says, means that he is not just technically righteous, but he is above being reasonably charged with wrong. Above reproach means that a pastor cannot be objectively charged with wrong. His life is above reproach. Now, this reminds me of Job. It reminds me of Job. And if you remember what the Bible says about Job, it says that he was a righteous man. Or we could use the language of Paul, he was above reproach. But like Job, like Job, pastors are not perfect. We're not. Far from it. Right? We're not perfect. However, here's the point I want to make. However, pastors are not perfect, but a pastor must meet these qualifications to a degree. And so, these qualifications are an entry, they're they're like an entry into, they're like a doorway into pastoral ministry, but they are also, and you're going to see this throughout, they're also an ongoing reality, And this can be no truer than our next 
qualification a pastor's marriage. So the third category is marriage. Verse 2, it says he must be the husband of one wife. Now, I believe if we translate this qualification, he is a one-woman kind of man. Now, Pastor Jeff said that many times here. I like it. A pastor is a one-woman kind of man. And if we translate it that way, if we interpret it that way, ultimately, I think it gets to the heart of this qualification. So when we translate it this way, it means several things. Here's what it means. It means, number one, a pastor does not need to be married. Okay? You might think that he has a husband and one wife, right? But we need to translate he's a one-woman kind of man. So a pastor does not need to be married. Secondly, it means a pastor can be married. Now, that seems obvious, but some traditions broadly out there don't see it that way, right? A pastor can be married. Third, it means this, that a pastor cannot be polygamous, and this is a huge issue in Sierra Leone, very, very large issue in Sierra Leone where I go um, all the time to serve the pastors there, right? But a pastor cannot be polygamous, one woman kind of man. And, and fourth, I'll say, just kind of as a, as a summary, a pastor must be devoted to his wife. So this rules out pornography. It rules out adultery. It rules out infidelity of all kinds. That's all forbidden. This qualification... This qualification, if I could summarize it this way, it's the heart of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was once asked if he could be any person that he is not, who would he like to be? And you know what he said? If I was not Winston Churchill, you know who I would like to be? I would like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. That is the heart. That is the heart of the pastor. He's a one-woman kind of man. He's devoted to his wife. All right? Fourth area characteristic is discipline. And there's three qualifications that fall under this. First, temperate. Sometimes when you encounter lists in the Bible, this is a list. <laughs> this is kind of a listy sermon. I get it. But... But when you come across lists in the Bible, it's very helpful to look at other translations because you can sort of match word for word, right? How does this other translation use this word in this text, all right? And here when you do that and you look at the English Standard Version, it uses the word sober-minded for the word temperate. And while that may not help you much better, <laughs> it does help me a little. I think it comes closer to the idea here. The idea of this word is that a pastor is one who is able to keep his head in all situations. He's not carried about by every wind of doctrine, emotional high, or the latest fad. He's stable. He's sober-minded. He's devoted to the work, come what may. And I think, oh my goodness, I think in a world, we live in a world, at least in the West, we live in a world of instant gratification, of a constant 
news cycle and of social media drama 24-7, we need elders to be even, steady, and committed for life. That's what we need. We need leaders like that. Come what may, they're sober-minded men. This doesn't mean the elder can't be emotional, that he has to be Mr. Spock, right? It means that the elder is not driven by his emotion. There's a difference. He's sober-minded. And this is so important because sober-mindedness impacts, it affects all that a pastor does, from his teaching what he says, <laughs> to how he says it. And again, pastors aren't perfect. <laughs> We're not perfect. But what he says, how he says it, to his leading. Think about that. Think about that. Being sober-minded to his leading, to his oversight, to his decision-making. In fact, all of these qualifications are necessary because they affect all of what a pastor is called to do. So let's temper it. Secondly, under discipline, is prudent. Again, this is a word, we don't use this word much in, in our English today. Um, but if you look at the ESV, it translates it as self-control. You know what that means. That's, that's much clearer. Pastors must be those who exercise self-control in all areas of their life. Mind, body, emotions, and passions. They must be men of self-control. Next, the last of the three under discipline is respectable in verse 2. Respectable is, and again, this is a, like, it's like the word above reproach. So here in the middle of these lists, we get this idea again of being above reproach, of being respectable. And, and it means as it sounds. A pastor is one who is respected by others. And again, hold that thought. We're going to get to why that's so important at the very end. All right? So, that's his discipline. Next, a pastor's ministry. Two qualifications under this, under his ministry. First is hospitality in verse 2. The word hospitality literally means love of stranger. That's what the word means. And it means obviously opening up your home. It obviously means having a generous heart, but it's more than that. It has this idea of having compassion and care for those on the margins and fringes, for the widow, the orphan, the poor. Being hospitable means not playing favorites. A hospitable person cares for all human beings. That's what the call here is for the pastor. They are to be hospitable. And then next, under his ministry, is able to teach. Now this is the one qualification that is not character-based, but is skill-based. He's able to teach. And so what this means is he has some knowledge in his head, right? And then he has the ability to communicate that knowledge. And what I want to say, able to teach, really means that a pastor has a teacher's heart. He is a teacher at heart. That's what he is. As one person says, pastors are equipped, they have the knowledge, they're eager, they have the heart, and they're effective. They can communicate. 
the teaching. Pastors are able to teach. Why is this qualification mentioned? It's because a pastor must be able to teach because this is the primary way a pastor leads and governs a church. A pastor or pastors lead and govern a church. It's through preaching and teaching the scripture. And we believe around here, this is a whole other sermon, but we believe in the plurality in multiple pastors or elders or bishops around here. And we believe that they all should be teaching. And so we very deliberately, you don't know this, you just see this, but we very deliberately have all of our pastors here have public speaking engagements at this church. Now I recognize that Pastor Jeff and myself preach a little more, teach a little more, but Pastors Jim and Pastors Don preach and teach too. They have times where they teach because that's what they're called to do, and they're gifted at it. And in addition to that, we're able to teach not just in public, but in private, one-on-one, in small group settings. So a pastor must be able to teach. Next category, we move on from his ministry, and we move next to his temperament. His temperament. Four qualifications here that I'm grouping under this. First, he's not addicted to wine in verse 3. Very beginning of verse 3. Not addicted to wine. Now, I recognize that this qualification has been the source of much controversy in recent years. And when I say recent years, I'm talking about like 100, 150 years. That's what I mean by recent. Right? We believe, we believe at this church that this qualification does not demand a pastor to be a teetotaler. Like he has to abstain from all alcohol. Right? We don't believe that He has to be free of alcohol. And there are good biblical reasons for this. And we stand with like thousands of years of church history in believing that. It's not only until recent years that that's been sort of a controversial issue. That's all I have time to say on that topic. We can spend a sermon on each one of these qualifications, brothers and sisters. You can say amen that I'm not doing that to you. (laughs) We're not going there. We're not going to do that. But here's the important thing. Why is this qualification added? Why should a pastor not be addicted to wine? Well, it's because it would break the other qualifications. Namely, sober-mindedness, for example. Sober-minded. Right? The point is, is a pastor must be ready in season and out of season. A pastor and the calling of a pastor is truly a 24-hour calling. It is. He must live, therefore, in a state where his mind, his heart, and his body are not under the influence. That's why a pastor is not to be, as Paul says, addicted to wine. Right? Secondly, under his temperament, is he's not pugnacious. And this qualification can be taken with the next one, gentle. So again, I like the ESV and the NIV. It it translates this, instead of pugnacious, because we don't use that word much anymore, it translates it violent but gentle. So I'm breaking those out as two, but we could say he's not violent, but he's gentle. The Greek translated not pugnacious literally means, this is what it literally means, this is funny to me, it means he's not a giver of blows. 
That's what the word means. And it's obviously talking about physical violence, but I think it's talking about verbal, emotional, financial, all forms that we would say is violent and destructive. A pastor is not to be pugnacious. But opposite of that, he is to be gentle. He is to be gentle. Now, gentleness, when we think of gentle, it does not mean weakness. That's not what gentle means. A pastor is not soft, sort of letting whatever come what may. The image that pops into my mind, maybe some of you who are a little older, is you remember the old Gumby cartoon, Gumby, you know, this green guy, really flexible and pliable and soft. Pastors are not Gumby, (laughs) right? That gives you an image, right? They're gentle. And so what does gentle mean? One person describes this so well. He says, gentleness does not signal a lack of ability, but the added ability to steward one's strength so that it serves good, life-giving ends rather than harmful ends. That's what gentleness means. And you know what? Our Lord Jesus Christ, He is the perfect example of gentleness. He is the perfect example of someone who is gentle, yet He was strong. He had strength. And then finally, under a man's temperament, a pastor's temperament, is he's peaceable. He's peaceable. Other translations translate this as not quarrelsome. Now, I I personally love a good debate. I do. I, I love a good debate. And so if there's any weakness in me in any of these qualifications, it's this one. Is this one. Again, I'm going to say I'm being transparent, right? But peaceable, peaceable is required because, because God hates division. He hates division and fighting among his people. Now, I recognize there will be disagreement, and disagreement is not the issue. The issue is, is a pastor quarrelsome? Or is he peaceable? Is he striving for solutions, for peace? Right? And the reason why this is so important is because, really to all these qualifications, is that if a pastor is not peaceable, you know what the church is going to be? The church is not going to be peaceable. That's how it goes. It, It generally happens is that the church takes on the ethos Right? The church takes on the ethos of the pastor or pastors. That's just how it works. So the pastor must be peaceable. Next category is money. He must be free from the love of money in verse 3. Now, as you probably know, Jesus had more to say about money than he had to say about heaven, about hell, about sex, about power, about many, many other things. And of course, Paul will tell us later in Timothy that it's the love of money that is the issue. It's not money. Money, in fact, if you think about it, is not what people love. It's what money provides, comfort, pleasure, status, on and on and on, right? 
It's clear to me why a pastor must be free from the love of money. Paul tells us that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we don't have to look far into our world to see what the love of money will do. The first person that came to my mind when I was thinking about this was Bernie Madoff. We see what happened. All of the evil that he caused with his love of money, but it's not the so-called white-collar criminals. The love of money can be subtle and deceptive and cause all kinds of evil in our lives, brothers and sisters. And we'll get to that when we talk about 1 Timothy 6. That's for another sermon. But this, was, this, this idea was so, like, impacting me. It just beautifully reminded me of this, just, just how this can be so, so dangerous. Recently, our family was re-watching the, uh, the Hobbit series. And if you remember the story, Thorin Oakenshield and his rowdy bunch of dwarves, finally, you know, after all this long journey, finally captured or laid hold of all of the gold, right? All of the gold in the Lonely Mountain. But then, if you remember, what started to happen? They laid hold of all the gold, and then the gold started to lay hold of Thorin. And as a result, if you remember the story, you read the books, as a result, all sort of evil starts to transpire. All things start to blow up around Thorin's life, even the slaughtering of innocent lives, because of his love of money. At bottom, at bottom, someone, as I was studying, helped me to see that a pastor who loves money is one who says to his people, by his life, that God is not enough. And therefore, you know what he does? He betrays the very message that he preaches. It's really true for all of these qualifications. Next category, finally, eighth category is his family. He must manage his household well in verse 4. And this qualification brings up the fact that all of these qualifications I've already mentioned, they're not only prerequisites, but they're ongoing realities. There's no better scene than this one. A man manages his own household well. This implies an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time thing. Oh boy, do I wish it was. <laughs> right? I sort of set it up. I say I do and then just things happen in my home. Right? No, no, no. Come to my home sometime and it will look like utter chaos. Right? doesn't mean I don't manage my own household well, right? But the point is, if, if, a fast, if a pastor fails to do this, if he fails to manage his own household well, you know what will happen? He will lose his family. And if he loses his family, he loses his pastorate. It's so interesting to me that the calling to pastoral ministry is this way, that that. You have to manage your own household well. It's different than other callings. You can still be a good programmer, a good lawyer, and lose your family. Doesn't mean you'll lose being a lawyer or being a programmer. It's not the same with being a pastor. He must be one who manages his own household well. What does that mean? It means that he leads and cares for his family well. And although all these qualifications have implicit reasons why they are stated, and we've touched on some of that, the implicit reason why we've 
state of these qualifications. This one has an explicit stated reason. Look at it with me in verse 5. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? If a man suffers because of poor leadership in the home, it is true that he will suffer in the church. The church will suffer as well. Now, let me make two additional comments about this idea of a man's family. Number one, Number one, this qualification does not require that a man's children are Christians. Now, some get that idea from Titus. We don't have time to unpack it, but that's not what this is teaching. It requires that his children are submissive on the whole, <laughs> like in the main. And, and look, at, look at me at verse 4. He must manage his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. It's not really about the children, but the children show the fruit of what a pastor is doing, right? So it does not mean that children have to be Christians. Secondly, this is an appropriate time to mention here as we think about these things and as you think about elders and deacons in this church, there's a sense in which a man's wife must be called as well as the husband, as well as the man. Now, it does not mean, as we said last week, that she is a co-pastor with him. And we're not given any details here in verses 1 through 7 of really what that means, what that looks like. It's going to vary based upon person and situation and wisdom. But I know pastors or I know missionaries who must meet these qualifications. I know people in full-time Christian ministry that they themselves, the man, they meet the qualification, but their wives don't. And so they aren't pastors or they aren't missionaries or they aren't in that vocational Christian ministry. Right? So there's some sense in which a wife needs to be called. And we'll get some more help here um, next time in verses 8 through 13 on that. Next, 9, maturity. A pastor's maturity. So it says here in verse 6, he's not a new convert. When I think about this, the image of a, of a tree or a plant comes to mind. If you think about that, I think it will help you. A new plant, think about a new plant, doesn't have roots that are deep, that are large, that go far into the soil. It's like the parable of the soil that Jesus gave. The seeds scattered, some fall on the wayside, the thorns choke it out because the roots are not there. This is why a pastor should not be a new convert. But in addition, there's another reason given. Look at it, verse 6. He's not a new convert so that he will not be conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Pride, obviously, is a struggle for every human being, even pastors. Pastors, therefore, like all Christians, are to grow in humility. But the pastorate is not a place for the proud. It's not a place for the proud. If you want to make someone humble, making him a pastor is not the place to do it. <laughs> it's not the place to do it. 
And again, in certain measure, these qualities are needed for entrance into the pastorate. And these qualities are also qualities that a pastor must grow in. And this brings up the question, right? How old does a person need to be a, to be a pastor? How old does a person need to be? Well, we're not given clear direction here, are we? It just says he's not a new convert. The, the scriptures do not tell us a precise age because age is not so much the issue. Timothy, after all, was a relatively young man, right? One person says, and, and this helps me especially, I'll throw this out to you engineer types out there, the, the issue of age is more analog than dialogue, or excuse me, analog than digital. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. Analog than digital, right? So it's not precise. Does he have to be 30, 40? Can he be 20? It, it, it doesn't say various contexts and situations are going to determine that, right? Think about the gospel going to an unreached people group that have never heard the gospel. You got to have someone lead the church, Right? Of course, that's a process of time, but that's going to happen very much more quickly than maybe here in a setting like ours, where the gospel's been for 200 plus years. Right? So we don't know too much about age. It just, he's not a new convert in the reason given so that he would not fall into pride and the condemnation of the devil. Finally is, tenth, we have reputation again. He is of a good reputation. And again, This is why I say above reproach, we've come full circle. So here, let me tell you why this idea, and as I restudied these, this idea was impressed on me. Why is a pastor to have a good reputation? Why is this such a big deal that it's mentioned the beginning, in the middle, and the end? After all, won't Christians be ridiculed by the non-believing world? We are, and we will be, right? We will have a bad reputation according to them in some ways, right? Here's the reason. The reason a pastor must have a good reputation is because they are leaders of the church, and the church is the public face of Jesus Christ to the world. That's what the church is. The church is the gospel made visible, as one person has said. So a pastor, in reality, a pastor, therefore, will be One, who has a good reputation, if his desire, if his reputation, if his marriage, if his discipline, if his ministry, if his temperament, if his money, if his family, if his maturity, all of those qualifications are met, he will be a man of good reputation. Now, I don't want you to leave this message after going through that list. I get it. Today is more of a teaching kind of sermon. After going through all of that, I don't want you to think, I'm off the hook. (laughs) I'm not a pastor, and I don't want to be a pastor, (laughs) right? That's not my calling. So I don't need to do or be any of these things. Well, I hate to break it to you, brothers and sisters. I hate to break it to you, but with the exception of three qualifications, the desire for the work, the ability to teach, and not a new convert, all of the rest of the qualifications are repeated elsewhere in the Bible for Christians, men and women. For example, according to Hebrews 13.2, all Christians are to be hospitable. 
So having these qualifications in leadership, it is simply meant to be an example for the whole church. If the leaders don't have these qualities, how can anyone else expect to have them? Right? So here is what I want you to answer this morning. What areas do you need to change or area that you need to change? What a great time to ask that question at the beginning of a new year. Right? You need a New Year's resolution? (laughs) Right? Look through this list. Where are you weak? Where, and I say this, by God's grace, where can you say, Lord, would you help me this year to be a peaceable person in my home? Lord, I need to be that way. My home right now is full of division. It's full of chaos. It's full of just this feeling of ickiness. Right? Lord, please, I don't know, whatever it is, where of these qualifications, except those three, where of them do you need to improve on? Brothers and sisters, as we enter this new year, I'm reminded, I'm reminded that the non-Christian world The non-Christian world values and appoints leaders based on intellect, wealth, ability, and personality. The Christian church, though, is led by men of character. A gospel-shaped church is a church with two officers, elders and deacons, who are, you know what they are? They are men of God. And so may God bless Grace Community Bible Church to continue to be a church that is led by elders and by deacons with this kind of character. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together as we close.